Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, composer, producer, and keyboardist Leroy Burgess, whose 50-year music career includes being an original member of the soul dance trio Black Ivory, and beginning with its 1972 debut, the group would go on to release six albums through 1984, plus a comeback LP in 2011. Those yielded seven top 50 US R&B hits and a top 20 dance track. Apart from that, Burgess further distinguished himself with dozens of other artists, including Herbie Mann, Eddie Kendricks, Rick James, Aleem, Change, Kashif, Edward Birdsong, and the Universal Robot Band. Leroy, thank you for joining the show. How are you? That was quite a list. I'm not used to hearing it like just listed like that, but I'm well, thank you. How are you, Scott? I am well. Thank you for joining the show. Much appreciated. Where are you coming to us from today? New York City, um, not far from my home in Harlem. I'm in the, um, I'm in the Bronx, not far from Yankee Stadium, actually. You know, such uh, deep music roots there. And yeah. um, you began singing at such a young age. Uh, could, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you gravitated towards singing and when you kind of knew that you, you really had that bug? My mom was a singer and my family was uh, 
brought up in the church. Um, um, my, in my grandparents' case, it was the Pentecostal church. In my mom's case, it was the Baptist church. So I was born into that. And my mom had this amazing, beautiful contralto voice that she used to sing along with the records all the time in the house. So this is something that I heard from the time I was an infant. Um, so not surprisingly, around the time I was two or three, I was singing as much as I was talking. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I just loved music and I loved, um, uh, I loved singing. My mom loved it. And uh, that's where it started. And who are some of your earliest influences in terms of, you know, singing and, and just being musical performers or presence in your life? My earliest influence as a vocalist would be Johnny Mathis because he was my mom's favorite singer. And um, back in the early days, 57, 58, so forth and so on, uh, that's when he had all those wonderful albums and wonderful singles. Uh, he had that this amazingly immaculate voice that I like to listen to and imitate. Um, so he was the first vocal influence on me, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, because I would sing along with all of those records. Um, you know, more came later. You know, as the different genres developed and we came out of the Romantic era into uh, R&B, early R&B, Motown, Stack, stuff like that. Um, I love Sam Cooke. I listened to a lot of his stuff. Uh, Jackie Wilson was also a favorite. Um, so those were the influences of that I would, the things that I would imitate when I was a kid. And uh, like I said, I, I just loved singing. I loved the way it made me feel. Um, so I did it a lot. And when and how did you sort of get your feet wet, uh, you know, being up on stage and performing in front of folks? I would say the official, the most official performance would be uh, after, in 1971, we, when we released the single Don't Turn Around and we performed for the first time at the Apollo. That'd be the first official one. There was a whole lot of performances before that uh we won the we won the uh the high uh we won the talent show at roosevelt high school when we was just when we were still the mellow souls and uh we did a lot of little shows uh back in the day in 1969 um my manager our manager at the time patrick adams was good friends with gene red who was the manager of cool and the gang and um at that time, Coon the Gang was entirely an instrumental band. Um, you know, they didn't do any vocals or anything. So it was uh, suggested that uh, uh, they allow the Mellow Souls, which was the name of the group at the time, um, to come on and sing a couple of numbers. And so uh, that was our first exposure to major crowds and stuff like that back in 1969 before the record was released. Um, so that would be my actual first time in front of gigantic crowds. Uh, but, uh, I count the Apollo as maybe the first official time. 
Yeah, the Apollo. That's really when you've arrived. That's exciting stuff for sure, especially being so close to where you hail from, you know. I was just glad that we didn't have to do amateur night. I mean, our first time there, we were hired as professionals, so I didn't have to go through the drama of amateur status and the amateur night audiences. I was a little scared of that. (laughs) Yeah, for good reason. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's very intimidating. That's one of the hardest audiences in the new in in, in New York, um, but uh, I made it. We did a, a an ex, we had an excellent show. We only did two numbers, but the audience was very thrilled about it. The girls were screaming; it was crazy. Now, is it true that you auditioned for uh, Patrick Adams over the phone? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, We had scheduled for Patrick to come to meet us at Larry Newkirk's house. Larry Newkirk was the person who brought me into his group, the Mellow Souls, along with Stuart Bascom. He brought both of us in. And we had been rehearsing and putting together stuff and so forth and so on. And uh, Larry knew Patrick, made arrangements for Patrick to come by. But Patrick, on the day that he was supposed to do that, he called up and said that he couldn't make it during which time I was singing in the background. I remember I was singing, Can You Remember, by the Delphonics. Can you remember? And um, Patrick heard me singing. And he was like, who's that singing in the background? And Larry told him it was the lead singing, you know, our lead singer, blah, blah, blah. And Patrick called me to the phone. We spoke for a little little moment. But yeah, that was the first time he heard us over the phone. Uh, I think... uh, Either uh, the day after or the following weekend, um, we went to meet Patrick officially at uh, PS92 on 133rd Street in, in, in Harlem. And that's when he got to really take a look. You know, but he liked us from over the phone. Wow, that's real lo-fi. You know, if you can get over in that, you should get over in anything, I would think. Well... Um, I was impressed and um, uh, I was happy that he, I was disappointed that Patrick didn't make the meeting, but I was happy to hear that we had another meeting scheduled and um, excited to meet Patrick uh, because uh, Patrick was just beginning to make his mark, uh, his early mark in the industry. Um, so it was a thrill for me. What were your first impressions of him? <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I mean, he was new to me, right? Uh, I I had some awareness and Larry had played a couple of records that Patrick had produced, early records on the Carlettes, right? And Ace, um, was it Ace Spectrum? The Spectrums, I think, was the name of the group. Um, And I was impressed by the sound and by what Patrick was able to do. But, you know, I was very timid when when I started out. So I was like, you know, just tenuous, well, tentative rather. And um, uh, we went and met him and uh, he was rehearsing with another artist, Sophia Carlisle, right? And um, we had to wait until that rehearsal was finished before we got a, a chance to get on stage and show our stuff. And um, he immediately liked us. So um, it was cool. And you were only 16? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was 16. 
Uh, I remember the year being 1968. Uh, so that would that would put me on like 15, going on 16 or something like that. And the other two guys were a year older? Uh, Larry was my age. Stewart was, you know, a few months younger than I was, right? I think Larry was older than I was by a couple of months. And Vito was um, around Larry's age. So, you know, we were all teenagers, you know, latter part of teenagerhood, 16 and up, 15 and up, you know. So, yeah, we were all kids. So at that point, when you connected with Patrick, you know, did, to what extent did he change your sound, if at all? I mean, what did you guys bring to it, and what did he run? We didn't with? have a sound when when um, we came to Patrick. We didn't. We were, you know, like many other groups, we were performing, you know, the records that we were familiar with and the records that were popular in our neighborhoods. Uh, so we were doing stuff by the main ingredient with the original lead singer Donald McPherson. Um, stuff by the Delphonics, stuff by the uh, Moments, uh, you know, just all of the little songs that, you know, made the girls head swoon for a little minute. So uh, that's what, you know, so when we got to Patrick, uh, he molded us uh, first in, you know, stage presence and performance and harmonies and stuff like that, but then also working with and getting used to his material and his his um, his style of writing and the way he put songs together, um, and somewhere along the lines, "Don't Turn Around" was written. Those uh, first singles, I mean, to me, the most obvious influences to my ears seem to be, you know, like the Stylistics and Jackson Five. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so. How did you look at those acts and, you know, what you guys were doing in terms of distinguishing, you know, yourself? Well, I love the stylistics because they were produced by my mother's cousin, Tom Bell, who was also the producer of the Delphonics, producer, composer of the Delphonics. I'd fallen in love with his musical work way back then, the early Jerry Butler days. I fell in love with Tom Bell's work. Um, and you know, to discover that he was actually related to me was always a big deal. So I loved all the stylists and stuff that they did. Um, the Jacksons, I was proud of uh, because that was another young man group or young teenager group that came out and uh, had success. So um, to some degree, uh, we um, emulated them. We admired them and... Um, we followed their image, but more than the Jackson Five, we really followed the five stair steps. Um, Kenny Burke, Clarence Burke, and the Burke Brothers group. Uh, we were in love with them from their initial records, Danger, She's a Stranger, and Come Back, that were done on Curtis Mayfield's label. Um, so we followed them more so than following the Jacksons, but the Jacksons was always that great. It was always just a great Motown group. You know, and we loved a lot of Motown groups already, Temptations, Four Tops, stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of how that happened. Do you remember, I'm, I'm guessing you, you do, uh, the first time you heard one of your records on the radio? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember it quite well. Um, 
that's when everybody had the little transistor radios, you know, handheld transistor radios. No such thing as a Walkman or anything like that at that time. Um, and um, I was at high school. And um, I think we were in um, either lunch or one of the off periods, right? And somebody came by and said, is this your record? And it was playing on um, WWRL, right? Which is one of the big black stations here in New York uh, back in the day on the AM dial. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, 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 that is me. And uh, so before I knew it, it was all over the school. And um, uh, it was a thrill. I was thrilled. I was thrilled that people were hearing it. Um, but um, I, was, I was really excited that people seemed to like it and seemed to really be impressed by it. I'm going to turn this mic down just a smidge. What was that? Uh, Don't turn around, or you and I, or Don't turn around was the first record, right? Um, and um, that's when Patrick secured the job as A and R director at Perception Today Records. Um, uh, the success of Don't Turn Around prompted them to give us an album deal. Initially, it started with just a single deal, um, but that prompted them to give us an album deal. And the second single on the album, you know, from the album uh, was You and I, which is the first, which was actually my first commercial composition with Stuart Bascom. The two of us wrote that song and um, that came out as the second single. And uh, everybody was excited about the version that was on the album because it was a kind of a seven minute long epic, you know, kind of thing that, you know, you just put it on and it's, great for seven minutes, seven whole minutes, you know, so it was cool. Um, so yeah, that's where that came from. How, how did you feel going into a studio and actually doing that for the first time? Did you feel, um, you know, relatively comfortable or was it something you really had to sort of warm up to? I liked singing a lot and I practiced a lot. So, uh, I, I had an idea that I was, you know, probably pretty good or, you know, I had something to, something to say. Um, so when I got into the studio, yeah, there was a little bit of butterflies, a little bit of nervousness, but I knew the song and I knew the work and I knew I wanted to do my best. So that's what, that's what I tried to do. So um, it was exciting, you know, my first time in the studio and, you know, in front of the mic and, uh, you know, getting ready to print a record. That was very, very exciting for me. Um, so, you know, as, as you might expect, it is for the, you know, for a young, young kid trying to make it. Absolutely. Um, how, how did you guys work on and come together with your harmonies? A lot of that was me because I had a good harmonic sense and I knew how to arrange vocals. So almost from the beginning, Patrick, you know, kind of put me in the role of vocal arranger because I just had these great ideas for harmonies and backgrounds. And I knew the, I knew how to differentiate the different notes. I'm, I'm saying that word so horribly, sorry. <laughs> differentiate. Um, um, so I was able to give Stuart or Russell their notes and then add mine and it would be a blend. And then we developed our harmonies from there. 
Uh, but I always had a good sense of harmonic arranging, um, particularly vocally. So Patrick put me at that job immediately. And how did you come to, uh, you know, the keyboards? Did you sort of just come to that on your own or did you ever have any training? Or? Okay. Um, I started banging on the keyboards when I was about four years old. A very kindly babysitter who used to take care of me named Mrs. McKinley had a piano in the house. And she was very uh, tolerant and kind and allowed me to bang on it, right? Uh, eventually, she showed me little things like playing little melodies like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and this old man, he played one, stuff like that. And before I knew it, I, you know, I was able to, you know, copy those little parts and stuff like that. That piqued my interest in playing piano. So every time I went back to babysit, she would teach me a little more and a little more. But then, um, you know, she passed on and um, I grew up and I didn't have a dedicated teacher until I was 11 after that. My second teacher was a gentleman named Herbie Jones. And he was the chief rhythm and brass arranger and copyist for the Duke Ellington Orchestra during the time Duke was alive. He also worked at the, at the community center of the project that I lived at, Drew Hamilton Projects. So um, um, I was just peeking over and watching him play and so forth and so on. And then I kept coming back and then he said, well, let me show me what you can do. And um, I banged on the piano. <laughs> I banged on the piano, but I managed to bang out a couple of notes that were, you know, understandable to him. And he said, well, let me teach you how to play. And slowly he showed me um, fingering, how to understand the scales. Uh, he bought me my first understanding of jazz arranging and how jazz interaction happens. Um, uh, and uh, so he gave me my first insight into arranging and song construction and stuff like that. Um, I was with him from age 11 to about age 16. And around 16 is when I went to Patrick Adams and he began teaching me his craft. And between the two, I began to glean and develop uh, my style, the things that I could learn to do and learn to play and incorporate into, you know, what would become my work. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the harmonies. Uh, Leroy, talk to me a little bit about the chemistry that the three of you had. Hmm. Okay. Another good question. Um, we were friends. And we were close, Stuart Russell and I. Um, uh, and um, we believed in each other. We had a good formula together. And uh, we liked hanging out. We still do. I mean, 54 years later, we still have just as much fun. Well, you know, maybe not the fun of a teenager, but we have plenty of fun. And Age-appropriate fun. <laughs> yeah, age-appropriate fun. And... Um, uh, we enjoy it. Um, so we were friends from, from the moment that we started working together. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, we remain friends to this day. And uh, we continue to perform 
uh, we continue to record and, and and try to put out new stuff. May have a new record coming out very soon. Well, we'll, we'll hear more about that before we sign off. Um, okay. Yeah. So, gosh, it must be just a kick to, you know, still, you know, have you guys all together still. And, um, you know, you can never imagine back then that uh, 50 years later, you guys might still be doing it, right? It's just an incredible journey, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been amazing. Um, but what's been the most noteworthy thing for me is to have our work continue to be appreciated and have the type of longevity that um, that uh, our work has seems to have. Um, I always wanted my my material to be something that transcended time, and and uh, it seems to be doing that. Um, we're fifty years in. And they're still playing Don't Turn Around on a regular basis, Mainline on a regular basis. Uh, you know, it's on somebody's playlist, let alone um, the other material that I've been blessed to be a part of. Um, so that's that's very a very cool surprise part of it. For sure. Who, who were some of the first groups that you guys went out with on shows? Okay. Um, one of our favorite groups to perform was Gladys Knight and the Pips, right? Uh, we went out with the Delphonics and the Moments all the time. All of the groups from the 70s slow jam era, we basically performed with the Shy Lights, uh, the Temptations, um, Delphonics, of course, many times, Blue Magic uh, when, they, when they came out. Uh, so, and then we got to meet so many of our idols and the people that we idolized coming up as kids, uh, we got to actually share stage with, with many of them. And uh, that was just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> did, did you ever get uh, to go on stage simultaneously with any of those cats? You mean where we're performing together at the same time? Uh, no, not often. Usually they would we would be on their show or on a show together. They would do their performance. We'd do ours, and then the other groups would do theirs and so forth and so on. It wasn't often that all the groups got together or multiple groups got together and uh, did an encore ensemble type thing. Um, but uh, it was just cool to be in the building with them, you know? <laughs> no doubt. I mean that's the you know, that's the golden era right then. I mean you were yeah, right in the thick of it. We got to we got to be friends with a lot of them. I mean you know we 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 had very close relationships with Gladys and and her brother Mel, um, Mel Bubba Wright and uh, we met a lot of people. We'd go from each other's dressing room, cracking jokes and just having fun. Um, uh, particularly during the time that there were a lot of tours happening. And we'd see each other a lot, the different groups. Um, so um, that was that was amazing. That was a, a wonderful time. You know, I was mentioning that that was definitely the golden era of these soul singing groups. Um, mm -hmm. That's indisputable. But out of all those acts, is there any one you can point to that just absolutely killed it? 
<laughs> All of those acts in, in their different ways killed it. Um, one thing about music, it's, it's very infinite. So there's a lot of spots to be good at uh, without, you know, uh, one transcending above another. Uh, so to me, all of them were good. To me, it was all great uh, uh, dealing with the different styles and the different visions um, and uh, just being exposed to all of that. At that time, say if we did a show that had Gladys Knight and the Pips, Coon and the Gang, the Delphonics, the Stair Steps and ourselves, right? In those five different groups, you have all different elements of R&B coming at you. Right. And you're absorbing all of that. You know, um, I know that I was absorbing all of that. Um, uh, and, 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 and it basically would lead to the development of what would become my style, the things that influenced the way that I play and the way that I compose. So it was very cool. It was just like dope. So with your, uh, singles and albums that came out the uh i mentioned all your your chart hits in the beginning um but the top spot for you and i was 32 uh which i think was your on the charts your top uh record i grew up in los angeles um i'm guessing that on the east coast maybe the airplay was heavier uh mm -hmm. for black ivory than it was on the west coast i don't know if that's true yeah, but, absolutely um, yeah sure um um, uh, that and the fact that Perceptions Outreach, you know, they had a national outreach to some degree, but their focus was on the East Coast, up and down the East Coast in the area of the day where they were located. Um, so we didn't reach um, the shores of California as much as we would have liked to, uh, to become more of a national influence. But um you mentioned chart numbers and stuff like that, and I kind of chuckled to myself because um, I've never really used charts as a barometer to gauge, you know, any any part of my music. Um, um, to me, if I just get one listener in one place, I'm good. <laughs> you know, if there's one person that likes it, and it's really not about the charts and all of that I always took as a numbers game and a game of one-upsmanship. So it's something that I didn't feel belonged in the area of being creative. So I would, you know, people would talk about the numbers and it's number five and it's number seven, number 10 or number six or whatever. And um, I'd be like, that's cool. <laughs> it just means more people are listening to it, but I don't, um, I never got really caught up into the numbers game at all. It's, it's just like however many people decide to like uh, your work, and that's it. How, how do you feel that you guys progressed through those first few albums? Um, okay, I'll be as honest as I can. Um, on the Don't Turn Around album, we had a specific sound uh, that was cultivated by myself, Patrick Adams, Stewart, and Russell, in that the four of us, the team of the four of us, basically wrote the album, basically put the concepts together and worked together on the realization of it. 
However, on the second album, Black Ivy, the group was performing um, and Patrick was still helming as the A&R director of, of Today Records. So basically when we came off the road and were ready to go in and do new songs, the album had already been completely written and designed for us, all right? And that, um, that was not reflective of the sound that we had in the previous album. So um, for, you know, after the second album, we stepped away from Patrick for a minute. And that's when we did the single for Kwanzaa Records, um, uh, What Goes Around Comes Around. Uh, but um, fortunately, um, we returned from, Kwanzaa was based out in California. And uh, that, you know, the company folded, I think, after a year. Uh, so which led us to get a deal at Buddha Records. And uh, this caused us to reunite with Patrick Adams in trying to capture that original Black Ivy sound. And um, that's when we put out Will We Ever Come Together? And that was kind of the comeback into the Black Ivy sound um, with that album. And from there, we, we went on to produce ourselves after that, at that point. Because we, we made it had uh, definitely, to me, more of a main ingredient kind of uh, flavor. And uh, yeah. uh, what goes around is sort of like, uh, to me, like a BT Express meets the Miracles kind of blend. Okay. Um, what goes around comes around um, was something that we were excited to do because of the interaction with the sound of the people from the Philadelphia crew. Uh, that is to say the musicians from MFSB and Norman Harris and all of the people that we admired, we admired their work so much. Uh, so we were excited about, you know, doing that. Uh, and while it was the departure from, you know, what was considered to be our traditional sound, it was fun to do. And uh, that was always great for us. Um, but, uh, like I said, during, from 73 through about 75, we were trying to find ourselves in terms of what our sound would be and, and what our sound should be based on our evolution from, to that point. So we were trying different things and doing different stuff. And we, I'd like to think wrote a lot of great, great material and produced a lot of great material despite what it might have done on the charts. It's amazing how many singles Black Ivory actually put out. I mean, you guys really put out a lot of singles um, from, you know, the amount of albums that you had. So many of the songs got put out on their own, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, very cool. Um, particularly from the Don't Turn Around album. That was, there was a lot of singles that came from that. Um, uh, and, uh, on baby, once you change your mind, I think there were at least two or three singles. Time is love was one of them. And, uh, I think time to say goodbye was also a single on baby. Once you change your mind, um, on, um, the feel it album, we never did an album for Kwanzaa. We only did the one single, um, on the feel it album, uh, starting with, uh, we started out with, 
uh, will we ever come together? And then that led to, we tried to, uh, we released Daily News as a single. Uh, we released a song called Love Won't You Stay as a single. And, um, you know, we just tried to put out whatever we thought might work. Um, how much, to what extent do you feel that, you know, the, the changing uh, waters, if you will, of, of, of music then, you know, moving toward disco um, affected Black Ivory and, and you guys trying to find that uh, transitional sound? It was difficult. It was quite difficult because, um, as often happens with um, soul groups, you we can you can be typecast, and we we were typecast as a slow jam group. So whenever we tried to do something that was up tempo or mid tempo or a little dancey, uh, they was like, "Oh no, don't do that because it doesn't that doesn't work for y'all and so forth and so on." So for a while. Because of the typecasting, we were held to that spot, right? Um, uh, and that was actually one of the motivations for me to have to step away because I felt faster music calling at me that I felt I couldn't do while in Black Ivy or as a part of Black Ivy. I felt the only way to do that was to step away. And um, that's what began my... Uh, in earnest relationship with Patrick Adams as a songwriter, co-producer, et cetera, et cetera, starting with um, personal touches, it ain't no big thing. And that evolved into uh, Weekend by Freak. And right there, I was able to make the transition from slow jam artists into doing fast songs and my fast songs being well-received. And you were still, what, just in your young 20s? I mean, you were still very young at that time. Yeah, uh, we're talking 77, 78. So um, I was 24, 25, something like that. Yeah. Um, still when a lot of guys are just trying to get their career going in the music industry. So, um, Right. Well, Patrick Patrick had, in, in, in the time that we had been away from Patrick, he'd made quite a name for himself as a producer, producing music, producing Cloud One, producing all of these great hit records in a life, so forth and so on. So uh, when I left Black Ivy, I went to Patrick for production work and keyboard work and background vocal work, stuff like that. And uh, ultimately that led him to asking me, you know, what compositions I had and what songs I had. And I think the very first song that I presented him with was Weekend. And he had the deal with Atlantic to do the Freak album. And uh, Weekend ended up being the first single from that album. How did it go over with the other guys that you were going to step away? You know, how did you negotiate or navigate through that? Well, all through, throughout 19, late 1975 and 1976, I tried to express to them that I was unhappy and I felt stuck and stifled. Um, they understood it to different degrees, all right? And um, neither of them were happy to see me go or see me step away temporarily, but um, they understood that this was something I had to follow my dream and follow my heart, and they supported me in that. 
Um, and uh, as it turns out, uh, in 1978, 70, 78, 79, uh, they called me back uh, to put, you know, to um, assist them with composing a number of songs, one of which was Mainline, right? So we actually reunited for that project. There were three songs that I did on that project. And for a minute, we were back together, just not as signed artists on the same label. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.